0: Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. We're in the second part today in a series entitled 10 Ways to Avoid a Post-Holiday Divorce. And I'm basically including post-holiday just to get your attention, really, It's 10 ways to avoid a divorce anytime during the year. And you might be thinking, well, I'm in a happy marriage. Uh, What does this show have anything to do with me? A lot, because the same 10 ways to avoid a divorce are the same 10 ways that you can help a friend or family member avoid a divorce. I mentioned last time that divorce season for lawyers spikes in January. In fact, during December, the Google searches for divorce information skyrockets and the first Monday after New Year's is known as Divorce Day amongst divorce lawyers. It's like, okay, I've given this a shot. I'm going to give up, and what this series is trying to do is give you 10 practical, concrete ways that you can restore your marriage, or if you're a friend, or a family member of somebody who's going through a difficult time, and by the way, all couples go through ups and downs in marriage, rather than saying to them, just move on, get on with your life, you deserve to be happy or something like that, and then encourage a divorce through this method, you can share with them some of these ways to prevent a divorce, and I'm thinking literally two or three of these would be enough to save perhaps the majority of marriages. And if you want to go all the way out and say, I want to share all 10, what we're going to prepare for you is simply a little handout that have the 10 ways to avoid a divorce. All 10 ways begin with the letter C. And last week we considered uh, the first one and we asked you to consider the children and the regrets. We mentioned the harm of divorce, the long-term harm of divorce through in-depth studies on children. We also saw that about half of all those getting divorced regret the decision, so you don't want to jump into this type of thing. And most importantly, we saw that those who would stick it out through difficult times if they just remained married for five years, 77% of those who described their marriage as very unhappy, five years later said that they were either happy or quite happy. So basically we urged consideration. That was the first C. Today, we're gonna to look at another pair of Cs, confession, confession, and communion and somebody saying, Ugh, I wanted to hear something practical for my marriage. Listen, what I am going to be sharing with you is beyond compare. Yes, you can go to a marriage counselor, pay a hundred, 150 an hour, and they might be able to help you, but it's really important to choose a good marriage counselor, because if you just look one up in the phone book, your probability of that counselor getting you through marriage difficulties is 20%. Uh, I'm gonna up that considerably by going to the very heart of the human person. We're going to the heart of marriage. We're gonna look at the way the creator who made the first man and woman, and you and me and everyone else on this planet, and also design marriage, we're going to look at what he says about the human heart. And as it pertains to marriage, confession and communion, in my estimation, are the overlooked diamonds for the renewal of marriage. So I'm going to share with you three questions and answers that if you really understand, you hear these and heed these, They will heal almost any marriage difficulty. Just this 30 minute broadcast, and we're talking about two things confession and communion. But first, the three questions. Number one, what's marriage? It's not a simple question because a lot of people don't know. Two, what is sin? And I'm not talking about the deep theological questions about sin, I'm talking about practically how does sin affect marriage? And three, what's the effect of the new covenant on marriage? By the new covenant, I'm talking about when Jesus came, was there a difference his coming made with the new covenant, our new relationship with him? Is there a new relationship established? First question, what's marriage? It's this, two, man and woman, Two become one in marriage in a profound union, a a deeply profound union that the Bible calls a covenant. A covenant is when two become one, okay? That's it, as as simple as that. But the struggle is how to the two stay one, how to the two maintain that deep covenant union particularly when you have such a thing as sin in the world. I have gone to conferences, and I'm asked to speak on marriage, okay? And I start talking about sin, and people thought, no, wait, you're getting off topic. And when people, and I'm talking about Catholics who know their faith, thinking you're getting off topic when you talk about sin and marriage, it shows that there's not enough talk about this. And this is going to be very simple, Very, very, very simple. But this is what is the fundamental cause of marital breakup. And it's as simple as this. What sin does to marriage is this spell sin. We're going to start with a small S, 12 point times Roman font. We're going to have a small N, the last letter in the word sin, with another 12 point times Roman font. And in the middle, we're going to go to a 99 point font for the eye. What sin does to human beings who were created to function in marriage in a profound covenant with love, what sin does is turn those hearts into profound selfishness. That is your fundamental problem in marriage. It's not your spouse. It's the selfishness that sin has brought into the hearts of human beings. And if you don't get a handle on sin, it will be thrown off. And, and here's something you really need to hear. And before you start pointing the finger of, you know, my spouse does this and doesn't do this and this and that and all, that's not the root of your problems. If you look at the Bible in the first couple of chapters, I'd say chapters one through three. Chapter one, God creates everything. And then chapter two, he drills down and he makes a covenant. And for the first time in the Bible, the covenant name for God, Yahweh, is used. And God makes a covenant with the human race where The two become one. God is joining himself in a profound relationship with people, and it's not by accident. In that same chapter, before chapter 2 of Genesis ends, God establishes the marriage covenant. It's kind of a reflection of the divine covenant. So this is what happens. You just turn the page to Genesis 3 and hear me on this. This is the root of relationship problems. This is the root of marital problems. You turn the page and sin enters. And again, we're not getting too theoretical here. We're wanting to know what does sin do to otherwise loving hearts in marriage. Sin turns the human heart towards selfishness. And when you have two centers of the universe living in a three-bedroom, two-bath home, you have intergalactic Conflicts and there's not enough room to go around. And this is the human condition. Right after the sin, God shows up and Adam starts blaming Eve for his own sin. And off you go. This is the source of marital problems. So you might say, your marriage, and I'm talking to Christians now, your marriage is somewhat of a barometer of your relationship with God. In other words, you're having profound difficulties in your marriage, well, one of the things you want to do is really, deeply, truly examine your relationship with God or deepen your relationship with God. And so often we kind of think, what, what technique did I need? Or and, and it's interesting. People think, well, I need a psychologist. And psychology has a point, but the best Catholic psychologist that I've had on this radio program that teaches you how to choose a good counselor says, if you get his counseling, you have to also be going regularly to confession. A very wise man, because he knows that the root of the human condition, the root of our problems, the root of marital discord is sin and the extreme selfishness that comes from that. So, that's questions one and two. What's marriage? What's sin? Question three. What's the effect of Jesus' coming in the new covenant on marriage? And it's pretty simple. The first miracle. And, you know, sometimes we're a little slow. The first miracle. The first first thing Jesus does in his three-year New Covenant ministry is show up at a wedding. You know, we're (laughs) we're supposed to get these things. Just like when we read Genesis 2, uh, when God's making a covenant with Adam and Eve and the rest of the human race, and then, you know, marriage just doesn't get thrown in at the end of Genesis chapter 2. It's organically connected. And when Jesus comes to establish the New Covenant, He goes to the wedding of Cana, and basically the Old Covenant had external washing, uh, ceremonial washing. Those were the water jars there at the wedding of Cana. And they were shown the need to wash, to wash from sin. The ceremonial aspects of the Old Covenant were to wash away sins, but they really couldn't. Something was needed inside that Jesus brought. And so there is your hope for marriage. Now, everything I'm going to share with you for the remainder of this broadcast, in fact, almost everything that I've shared about marriage over the last uh, 28 years as a Catholic comes from a document from St. John Paul II entitled, The Role of the Christian Family in the Modern World. And I got to come clean on this, okay? I went to a a conference in San Diego with Jerry Matatix and Scott Hahn. The three of us had gone to seminary together. The three of us had become Catholics, and the three of us, this is our first reunion together, and it was kind of interesting because when you have one convert, minister convert from Protestantism, well, that's a fluke. Uh, If you have two, it's a coincidence. If you have three, well, maybe we better listen to these guys, see what's going on. I was asked to give four talks, and I gave a talk on the Eucharist. I, I think there's a talk on justification, but I remember specifically, and these were talks, what reasons prompted you to become a Catholic? And the One talk out of my four that really hit people, it was the Catholic view of marriage and family life. And as a Protestant minister, after having studied the early church fathers regarding marriage and looking at the early church fathers and reading them and looking back and seeing Jesus's words about marriage, that it was lifelong, I read This Role of the Christian Family in the Modern World, and I was stunned. I felt that here was the answer for lasting marriage in the modern world. At the time, I wasn't a Catholic. I was a searching Protestant. So I became a Catholic, and all of a sudden, people started asking me to come around and go to these Catholic marriage and family conferences and talk about the things that I mentioned in my one out of four talks in San Diego. Well, I can tell you what I did. I basically underlined sections of John Paul II's role of Christian family in a modern world and hit the road and maybe took a couple of those paragraphs and add a little explanation for it. People go, wow, that's really something. Never heard that before. And you know, this thing cost $3.25. And almost everywhere I went around North America, this was new news. And of course, it's difficult to be married in any age. It's especially difficult to be married in the contemporary world. Catholics and Protestants are not exempt from marital problems. You know that, I know that, and yet the solutions were here, and people said, oh, I've never heard anything quite like that before. I'm thinking... All I did was get this little uh, apostolic exhortation from St. John Paul II and hit the road, underline it, and went. Now, I just went to uh, Amazon just before coming into the radio studio. I paid $3.25 for advice that's worth easily, if you're facing divorce, this is easily worth ten or $15,000. And I'm not overestimating because a divorce will cost you more than that. And the consequences a lot more than that. And you can go to a marriage counselor and I encourage that. In fact, that's one of the C's coming up and how to choose a good counselor. But I would choose first to go to amazon.com for a $1.99 now you can get this role of the Christian family in the modern world. Now, in here... He says this. This is from section 20. And by the way, what I would suggest doing: I like a hard copy. You can go to the internet, Vatican website; it's on there. But I would get a hard copy and underline key parts. This is what I did. In fact, I, you know, I traveled, 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 traveled because Catholics couldn't hear enough of this, and all I was doing is basically, you know, sharing portions of my highlights from this wonderful document from John Paul II, The Role of the Christian Family in the Modern World. Here's how he begins. It's a fundamental duty of the church to reaffirm strongly the doctrine of the indissolubility of marriage. That means it can't be split. You're not to make the two become one. You don't become two again. You stay one to all those who in our times consider it too difficult or indeed impossible to be bound to one person for the whole of life. By the way, do you realize there were people at the recent family synod who thought it was too difficult or impossible for people to be bound to one person for the whole of life? Well, John Paul II is directly contradicting that errant notion He says, those who are caught up in a culture that rejects the indissolubility of marriage and openly mocks the commitment of spouses to fidelity, it is necessary to reconfirm the good news of the nature of the love that has in Christ its foundation and strength. This is why, you know, folks, God made you. God made marriage. God joins you in marriage. And if you're having marital problems, you don't want to run away from God. You don't want to be embarrassed of God. You want to come back to God and get his help to restore your marriage. All right. Now we get to the necessity of confession. This is from section 21 of the role of the Christian family in the modern world. And here, St. John Paul II gets right down to brass tacks, and hear me clear, because I'm just giving you his exact words. He says, there is no family that does not know how selfishness, discord, tension, and conflict attack and at times morally wound its own communion. Hence, there arise the many and varied forms of division in family life. Okay, this is the Pope speaking. There's no family that doesn't know selfishness, discord, tension, and conflict. Okay, what do you do with that? Here it is. At the same time, every family is called by the God of peace to have the joyous and renewing experience of reconciliation. That is communion reestablished, unity reestablished restored. In particular, participation in the sacrament of reconciliation and the banquet of the one body of Christ offers to the Christian family the grace and responsibility of overcoming every division and of moving towards the fullness of communion willed by God. Responding in this way to the ardent desire of the Lord that they may be one. God wants your restoration, your renewal, your healing, and in particular, St. John Paul II says, it's confession and the Eucharist, confession and communion, which have the grace available to overcome every division. And he, he recognizes. Families suffer these things. So what do you do? Well, you get to confession. That's what you do. And one of the things, if you're going through marital difficulty, you regularly need to get to confession. You think, well, I'll kind of kind of activate my faith life once I get my marriage together. Uh-uh, uh, that's, that's just 180 wrong. You want to get to confession and start renewing your spiritual life with really solid confessions on a regular basis. Now you'd say, well, what exactly do I confess? If you Google this, the Knights of Columbus Guide to Confession, it's a nice little PDF printout that you can take with you to your parish as you're waiting to go to the confessional. Again, that's the Knights of Columbus Guide to Confession, and they have an examination of conscience which you can use before you go to confession. This is a verse back when I was a Protestant minister. When I started, I had a lot of notions of what people needed, and it took me a decade, but I got to something really, really important. I got to the point where I realized that one of the most important things for Christians is to know that God loves them, even though they realize God thoroughly knows them. In other words, can God love us when we have sinned? If we confess our sins, this is Psalm 103 and verse 12. I used to read this almost every Sunday to my congregation towards the end when I figured things out. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. You see, confession is your first step in getting rid of sin. Don't let it dominate your life because it will produce selfishness, and selfishness will inevitably result in great tension within a marriage. So this is why confession is so necessary and Now, don't get me wrong on this, but I almost think that confession is more fundamental to healing marriages than the Eucharist, which I'm going to talk about just for a moment. Now, somebody will say, Steve, you got that wrong. The Eucharist is the source and summit of our Catholic life, and that's absolutely true. But to get to the summit, you have to go through the gate at the foot of the summit called repentance and confession. You see, if you want to meet Jesus at the summit, you have to meet John the Baptist at the foot of the summit because going to to communion when you have serious sin on your soul doesn't do you any good. In fact, it causes spiritual harm. So confession is so critical. But the other right along with confession is communion. And this is one of the things that I learned. Well, I shouldn't say I learned it that I continue to be amazed by. I've met countless Catholics at marriage and family conferences who love their faith, love the Eucharist, are dedicated to their family. And remember, every Catholic family, according to the Pope, has to have selfishness and discord and tension and conflict they have to deal with, okay? It amazes me to this day that so many thousands of good Catholics don't link in their minds communion with Christ and the union in their marriages. You go to um, Mass every Sunday, and do you ever approach Jesus in the Blessed Eucharist and saying, Jesus, I need your graces? in order for my marriage to survive this month. We're going through difficulties. Give me, start with me, give me your graces. And you know, when Jesus showed up at the wedding at Cana, there were like something like 120 gallons of wine. There was so much wine. it was The miracle at Cana was showing there's an abundance at the very point where there's a lack. There's healing at the very point where sin destroys. And this is where John Paul II said, the Eucharist is the very source of Christian marriage. Link it in your mind. Link it up in your heart. Link it up when you go to mass and say just a prayer for your marriage in the presence of the Eucharist or right after the Eucharist. He says that Christian spouses in the Eucharist encounter the source from which their own marriage covenant flows. This is the headstream. So go back to the source. This is where you encounter the one who made marriage and heals marriage. And he goes on to say, as a representation of Christ's sacrifice of love, the Eucharist is a fountain of charity. Imagine a kind of a wine fountain of gallons and gallons of wine, that Eucharist is the gift of charity for every Christian family joined to Christ in the Catholic faith. Remember, marriage difficulties don't separate, give hope, communion, and confession. I'm Steve Wood, your host of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.